0: in Hebrews chapter 13 this morning, turn there with me if you would, print in your Bible, launch your app at this point or however else you uh, prefer to see the scriptures, let's stand together as we hear God's word, Hebrews 13, 1 through 16, continuing in our series in Hospitality. The author of the Hebrews writes this, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is God's word. Pray with me if you would. And so now, O Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you alone are our strength and our Redeemer. Hear our prayers for Christ's sake, we ask it. Amen. Be seated. Senator Ben Sass, who's the junior senator from the state of Nebraska. Shared this recently. I share it not with you uh, either because it is partisan or political, but rather because it's a powerful story. Um, Ben is a is a Christian. He served previously as uh, the president of uh, a university. He um, is a rumor has it he's a ruling elder in a PCA church. I've not been able to confirm that for sure, but he's uh, um, he's at least one of us in understanding um, some of the uh, or agreeing with some of the same things in Scripture. Um, He posted this uh, several months ago. Uh, simply titled it A Homeless Guy and a Feast. Um, he tells the story of um, a guy that he says, we'll call him Dave. He changed his name to protect his privacy. He said, I was spending time at a homeless shelter. I was introduced to him as a former resident and a current cook. Um, he said, this isn't an ego-stoking charity job. He's a paid worker, a central part of feeding a whole lot of men, a whole lot of food 21 times a week. He said, we got talking, and this is Dave's story. He said, he's not much older than I am, but he's experienced a whole lot more. He described how he began drinking around age five. Uh, He started weed at age eight. About that time, he concluded he was a full-blown alcoholic. Uh, The relatives he lived with were rarely around, so his house became the place for school-skipping buddies to hang out. Uh, Soon they graduated to harder drugs and crimes uh, needed to sustain their habits. By the time he was 13... He had had enough run-ins with the law that as terms of his probation, he was banned from Kansas. He said he joked that Dave was the youngest dude in history of Kansas to be banned from entering the state. Part of the story continues with Dave working uh, various jobs, beginning to earn some money, and eventually getting this job where he works in this food pantry feeding people 21 times a week. Ben says his story unfolded over the next 30 minutes or so. And Ben said, as we parted, I asked him, next time I come back here, what's the best thing I can do to add real value for you as you lead your kitchen? I don't want mere busy work. I want to be tackling actual needs you have as the boss. Ben says, I'd had tears in my eyes a bunch already this day, but here's where they almost spilled out. Dave matter-of-factly announced, listen, You could obviously dish out meals. You could plate desserts. You could come up early and open the vegetables. There were crates of cans behind them. You could help clean up. But when I look out the serving window at these guys, I see myself 10 years ago. And you know what they actually need? They need humanity, they need touch. They need you to look them in the eyes and see them, not just look at them. They need you to want to be there. When we're homeless in this city, Dave says, we're pretty fortunate. We know that you can almost always get food. That isn't the problem. People leaving restaurants with their leftovers will always throw calories at you. But nine times out of ten, they also throw some spite at you. We know they think we're worthless. The ache in his voice showed the wound hadn't fully healed 10 years out. Dave said, There's always food. There's never a dinner. Ben said, His gravelly voice is burned into my brain, but it's more a picture than a sound. He didn't use the word feast, but that's what he meant. By distinguishing between mere food and an actual dinner, he was explaining that there's no event to which the homeless guy is ever invited. There's always food. There's never a dinner. Whose job is it? Whose job is it? Because after all, that's that's what we do, isn't it? We break down the elements of life into tasks and jobs. and A lot of arguments get started over uh, answering that very question, whose job is it? Is it the state's job? Is it the federal bureaucracy's job? Is it a nonprofit's job? But what if, and, and I want you to just maybe suspend disbelief for just a minute, what if, Talking about whose job it is is the wrong way of approaching it. What if fundamentally, hospitality, as we see it in the scriptures and as we see the need for it in our society, is not a task of the church but a trait of the church? It's not something we do, it's not something we add on, it's not something we pile on to an already busy life, but it's something that is so infused at the very fabric of who we are that it no longer becomes a task to be fulfilled, but rather a trait that we are known by. What does that look like? Well, I think that we begin to see some answers for that here in this text this morning. This text, Romans 12, which we'll tackle next week, 1 Peter 4, are some of the principal texts in the Bible where this word hospitality is actually used. Now, as anyone would do as you're trying to understand a word, if you're going to understand a word, first you have to be able to define the word. And I included uh, the definition Dr. Christine Pohl um, gives in her book, Making Room, in your program, in your sermon outline, because it's a little wordy. Uh, So I actually wanted to give it to you as a definition. But, But that doesn't satisfy biblical linguists, right? We actually want to know, what does the word itself actually mean because a lot of times the word carries with it some weight. So in verse 1 of Hebrews 13 the the author says do not cease in showing brotherly love let brotherly love continue. In the next uh, verse he says this. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So we're going to do a little Greek exercise this morning. By the end of this, you will know three more Greek words than when you started. Well, two Greek words in a phobia. Could apply to all of it. Who knows? First word, Philadelphia. What does it mean? Right, we know this, right? It's the city of brotherly love. Why? Um, phileo is one of the Greek words meaning? Love, Delphi, brother, city of brotherly love. Okay, here's the phobia. What is xenophobia? You know what xenophobia is? What is it? Not fear of everything, fear of strangers. I heard it over here. There's a fear of strangers. Xenophobia is a fear of strangers. Well, do you know what the word hospitality is? Philosinia, love for the stranger. Hospitality in the Greek literally means love for the stranger. Now, um, that's great. That's good to know. Um, But frankly, for many of us, um, we're still still hung up on the verse 1 of let brotherly love continue part. We're still trying to get to know and love the people that we do know. We haven't even begun to talk about the people that we don't know. Why is that? Why is that that we can't, that so many of us have a hard time getting beyond the, um, the brotherly love standpoint and even getting into the conversation about what does it look like to love a stranger? I think that one of the answers is this. Um, one of the answers is because we have conflated the idea of hospitality with entertainment. We've made it into uh, whatever Martha Stewart and the Pioneer Woman and Giada De Laurentiis and all the other personalities on Food Network and Cooking Channel and everything else and HGTV, what we've done is we've seen it as this has to be uh, me at my best. And you know what that nagging voice is in your head? It's the same nagging voice that um, moms deal with, and that's why it's important for us to affirm um, that Jesus and we love our our moms um, because they operate under this weight of perfection. Now, I'm not saying, by the way, that hospitality is uh, a woman's task. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. This idea of perfection, perfection. We have to put on the perfect face, the perfect meal, the perfect house, the perfectly behaved children, the perfectly sociable spouse who doesn't check out as soon as they get home or get down at the table, whichever spouse that is. Everything must be perfect because at the end of the day, it's about how are they going to walk away feeling like this was a memorable occasion, a memorable party, the most wonderful centerpiece. Did you see the way that the whole meal tied together? Wow, what was that seasoning in that dish? Heaven forbid we ordered dominoes 10 minutes before you got over to the house because we're driven by this sense of perfection. Perfection. And so we hear this command here, and it's a command, by the way, do not, so it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an imperative, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. If you look at Paul's definition, she says hospitality was this holistic view of a person that gave them dignity and significance and worth and value, and it didn't always but most often included a meal. You have to understand that in the ancient Near East, a meal was a significant thing. Tim Chester, in his book, A Meal of Jesus, says this. He says, The meals of Jesus represent something bigger, they represent a new world, a new kingdom, a new outlook. But they give that new reality substance. Jesus' meals are not just symbols, they're application. They're not just pictures, they're the real thing in miniature. Food is stuff, it's not ideas, it's not theories, it's food, and you put it in your mouth, and you taste it, and you eat it. And meals are more than food. They're social occasions. They represent friendship, and community, and welcome. You see, what, what people in our lives need is they don't need our perfection. They don't need our performance. What brothers and strangers in need is our provision and our presence. Always dinner. There, there's always calories, there's always a meal, there's never a dinner, Dave said. To see how scandalous it was that the meals of Jesus were often open to those who were dubbed sinners and tax collectors, We need to appreciate the role that meals played in the culture of the day. New Testament scholar Scott Barchi says this. He says, It would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom one had shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible." On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal was an invitation that opened the way to reconciliation. Now, here's where the studies are for us currently as a culture. Currently as a culture, um, it is, if you take the entire society over the last uh, decade and a half or so, and look at it, on average, we eat together in the same room at the same time Meals approximately three times a week. That's three out of 21 if you're averaging three meals a day. I sometimes skew the average, I won't tell you which direction. Um, The meals last for approximately 20 minutes, it's just food is fuel. but we have to dig a little bit deeper. It's not just, okay, share a meal. There's a whole ethos behind hospitality. You've got to understand that there is a difference, a radical difference in the Bible between what uh, God tells his people to do in practicing hospitality versus the common convention of the day. And this is my my second point of how Christian hospitality is different than the hospitality uh, experienced in the world. See, here's the thing. Hospitality, the codes of hospitality in the Mediterranean Basin in the ancient Near East were basically given in order to expedite the economy, okay? Nobody had Hilton Honors points. Nobody had Marriott's. Nobody had hotels to go stay in or bed and breakfast or Airbnb. None of this. If you were going to get from point A to point B and it was longer than a day's trip, you had to stay somewhere. You needed food. You needed shelter, especially for the longer trips, right? There was only so many rations that you could pack for yourself. And so it was common in that day, uh, hospitality was an expected code, but it was, uh, uh, I'm going to give so that I can get in return. There was always reciprocity involved. And then the hospitality code was a very well-established code. There were four steps to it. The first step was there was uh, an invitation, Then there was a screening, then there was provision, and then there was a departure, okay? So very quickly, the invitation. People would gather outside the city well, outside of the gates, and there would be a a recognized need, that there was a need for hospitality. You would go out to the well, you would stop by that person, and you would screen them, because you didn't want them to be an enemy that was going to come in and destroy your city overnight. That would be bad. That's not the type of person that you really want in your house. So there was a little bit of screening. Perhaps they would carry with them some references from from, from some other known people, so that they could have with them uh, some sort of way to vouch that they were who they said they were, and they're not going to destroy your town and, and make it a really bad night for you. The third thing that would happen was provision, and this is where you fed them, and it wasn't that you got the Tupperware out of the fridge and busted out the leftovers. You cooked them a meal. You actually fed them lavishly. You cared for their every need. You made sure that they had uh, a good place to sleep at night and everything else, and then, and this was the most important part for them, two days, two days. Two days was max. No more. Two days. You departed. You left. That's the way you parted ways. But God comes in and says something very different. You heard the text that Micah read earlier from Deuteronomy chapter 10. Let me read one more text for you. It's over in Leviticus. Listen to this. Over in Leviticus, um, in Leviticus, I just lost my place. Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19. Listen to what... Uh, listen to what Moses writes here, beginning in, verse, uh, beginning in verse 33. Leviticus 19, when a stranger, that'd be a, someone in need of hospitality, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Here's why. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Did you hear what he said? It was not expediency, it was not economics. The reason that you welcome a stranger into your home, the reason that you lavish them with hospitality, is not out of expediency, but out of generosity. And it is a response to what God has done. Do you see, because I brought you out of the land of slavery and have lavished my love upon you, therefore, when a stranger comes into your midst, I'm blowing open wide the hospitality code of the day. No longer is it two days max with a very rigid set of rules. Now, you love them as yourself. You love them like they're one of your own. Because that's how I've loved you. You see, the whole point of this was to build community. God was building for himself. He was gathering for himself a people that he had set his affections upon, that he was gathering together, both uh, beginning with Israel, but then in Jesus, gathering for himself a people from every tribe and nation and tongue, a pan-national family for his own possession. It's all about building and expressing the generosity of God and and building a kingdom and a community together. So what we see in our text then is uh, the verses that follow here. All of these are expressions of building community. Look at this. He gives, three, he gives four examples in verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, and verses 6 and 7. Let me just roll through these quickly so you see all of these things because they all tie together. Because hospitality, not a, not a task but a trait, okay? Okay. All of these things as well, though they, though they come as indicatives or they come as commands, he's not saying go out and do these things and check them off your list. He's saying go out and be these things because this is who you are. And this is what my, pe- this is what my people do because they have been remade, reborn, changed from the inside out. What's the first thing that they do? The first thing that they do is remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. In fact, one church historian said that there was a particular case uh, where someone was imprisoned and the Christians, uh, this was not someone that liked Christians, by the way, that the the Christians um, actually went so far as to become incarcerated themselves so that they could minister to this man, bring food to him. Because remember, in this day, uh, it wasn't like the prison system now, where people are fed just because they're in prison. If you're going to get food or provision in prison, it's because someone's going to bring it to you. If you have no one, you get nothing. And this is what the Christians were doing. It was the Christians were remembering those who were in prison and ministering to them. What's the next thing? Verse 4. Not only were Christians to uh, to care for uh, injustice and to seek justice and to lay themselves on the line for justice, Christians were also to do something very radical. Now we read this and we go, "Oh yeah, well, there's God being really, you know, very prudish and very uh, whatever." This is not it at all. Um, When when the writer says, "Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let marriage the marriage bed be undefiled," for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. And then verse five, "Keep your life free from the love of money." And be content with what you have, for He has said, "I will never leave you nor forsake you." Do you understand what was happening in the ancient Near East? Is people were were um, very uh, um, very fastidious with their money and very free with their relationships. Male prostitution was rampant. It was uh, the, the society itself treated marriage as a as a as a, a, a nice commodity, but nothing to be held sacred. Money was held sacred. And do you see what's happening here? No. Instead, this is what it looks like to build people. You're going to you're going to serve your spouse by keeping the marriage bed undefiled, because you're going to uh, this is the, this is the place where families come from. As Chip prayed a moment ago, this is the place where uh, where families flourish in the midst of a of a monogamous and safe relationship between a husband and a wife. And you're, so you're going to be uh, you're going to be very fastidious with your uh, with your sexual relationships, but you're going to be generous with your money. <laughs> Because showing hospitality is not cheap. So he's turning on its head everything that would have been the convention of the day. Here's the last one. Um, Verses 6 and 7. This is fascinating. Um, And I admit to you that before this series, uh, this one had just completely gone right by my Gone right by. Never once noticed it. So he says... um, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Do you know what one of the traits is of an elder in both 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1? That they would be hospitable. In fact, Paul says in 1 Timothy that they should be thought well of by outsiders. So therefore, the men those that have been set apart by the church for leading the church are the ones that are also to be leading the way in being hospitable. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that it gets shouldered on their wives to do all the work, and then they, show, they just sort of show up at dinner and, and, and preside over a meal. No, they're actually the ones that are demonstrating, leading out in the practice of hospitality. That's what it looks like to be a leader in the church. Paul says, both to Timothy and to Titus. And here the author of the Hebrews says, consider your leaders, look at where they're going, imitate their faith. My brothers, what does it say about us? Are we men that are known for our hospitality? I should also say that um, in preparing and preaching this series, I've realized I'm very much a work in progress but I've seen ways in which I want Jesus to change me. And this one hit me. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. It's not just the soundness of our doctrine, the eloquence of our teaching, or the grace centeredness of our preaching. If our lives are not worth imitating, what are people following? How do we get there? How do we get there? That's where this text uh, takes us. How do we get from the point that hospitality is not just a task that we add on to our lives, but it is a trait that infuses every aspect of who we are, that we're not just, uh, we're not just a welcoming people, but we're an inviting people. We're going and we're seeking out those that are outside uh, the city gates, so to speak, and inviting them in and caring for them and loving them uh, and lavishing the generosity of God on them. Um, it's, it's costly, it's sacrificial, um, but in the passages that we looked at earlier, both in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus, the way that Israel related to the stranger was in response to how God related to them. So there's a couple things that we see here in this text as we, as we, as we close. One is in verse 5. Um, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Um, do you know the hymn, um, How From a Foundation? Um, the soul that on Jesus is lean for repose. Um, he, will not, no, he will not desert to his foes. Um, in that hymn, it says, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. The hymn writer was not just filling space. Like that wasn't just because, um, well, we need more syllables, so let's just repeat a word. That's actually the underlying Greek here. There's, there's the underlying Greek of verse five. I will, it says, I will never, never leave you. I will never, never, never forsake you. God is saying here that he is the great promise keeper because we are secure in him. We don't have to be perfect for others. We don't have to fear their disapproval or seek their approval. We can offer them provision and presence because all that we would want or need has been supplied for us in a God who has neither abandoned nor forsaken us. But we should also talk about that word forsake really quick. Um, in verses 12 and 13. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Look, um, Hospitality worked because people were called to go outside the gate, interview people, and bring the weary traveler in. Jesus was inside the gate. Jesus was thrown outside the gate for us. The promise that I will not forsake you is true in verse 5 because Jesus was thrown outside the gate. And when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was Jesus that was forsaken by God so that we would not be forgotten by God. Jesus has taken the inhospitality of God for us. Jesus has taken the being turned away for us. Jesus took our forsakenness, our homelessness, our brokenness, all wrought by sin and shame, and was cast out so that we could be brought near. There's a point here in verse 14 here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We're actually going to talk about the theme of that verse uh, in week six of this series. We're going to spend the whole Sunday just on that kind of longing theme. So I'll I'll come back to that in another sermon. Um, Listen, friends, the resurrected Jesus does not offer us calories. He offers us a meal. So how does this go from... Uh, From task to trait, listen, Jesus says, I rescued you, let others in. Jesus says, I supply you, supply others. Jesus says this, um, the Pharisees issue with Jesus and his party. So the Pharisees didn't doubt for a second that the kingdom of God was going to be a party. They didn't object to the party, they objected to the guest list. Jesus says, I scandalized the world by letting you in. <laughs> That's us, by the way. Now scandalize the world by who you let in. These commands are not obeyed without verse 15 and 16 through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, a trait, a lifestyle, that which is worthy of bearing the name of Jesus, not because of our worth, but because of his. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name and not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So how are we doing Um, if you think about it, there are probably several questions that we could answer, which is one, who are the strangers that I know? Who are my neighbors? Who are the people that are outside the gates right now that can't come in because no one's invited them in? Um, these are the things that I want to think about in the coming weeks that we have in this series. For now, um... What I want to rest in is this. I'm a mess. And that's okay with Jesus. Because he came to redeem messes. But just like his disciples, the prerequisite of living as his follower was not after I got my life together, but while he was getting my life together. So are you feeling all over the map, good. Come and meet Jesus with the feast that he spread before you in order to taste and see that he's good because you've not just been invited to subsist on calories, you've been invited to a dinner.